I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Rick Kelly. And we love to watch. We love to watch, ass. Uh, who will survive in America? Probably like a white yuppie cover couple with an RB. Double D, big breast on my baby. Triple A, couldn't wait the love I got for the girl. And I just wanna know why you ain't been going to work. Boss ain't working you like this. He can't take care of you like this. Now you're lost, lost in the heat of it all. Yeah, they're fine. They're fine. They're totally fine. Gail Scott Heron? That's that's exactly who's going to survive in America. This specific couple. I mean, the thing is, because it ends in America, a lot of songs uh, you could have chosen from. I was thinking that we could do it in the cadence of, like, uh, This is America, or it's just Lost in America. Don't get you slipping up. <laughs> <laughs> Don't blow the nest egg. Yep, don't blow the nest egg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the nest egg. Yeah, but where we love to watch more movie podcasts, we don't blow our nest egg uh, because we don't have them because we're millennials. Uh, and we uh, typically do movies around a theme over the course of a month. If we remember, we compare and contrast. Incredibly easy this much this month because we are doing. Um, Moran on Brooks? I don't know if that's Brooks on Moran. Well, it's it, it's the fourth episode we're recording, so I think it's kind of set in stone. Whatever it is. It, it could be something completely unrelated to what I'm saying, but it's a month where we're going through the first four films directed by Albert Brooks, mainly because uh, in a conver- uh, Pete had never seen any Albert Brooks movies. So we we did not uh, – we, we chose these four because I think these are generally considered his – his four best. I have seen uh, Mother and the Muse. Didn't really care for either of those all too much. Uh, and I never saw Looking com- Looking for Comedy in the Muslim World. Uh, but these four are pretty unimpeachable comedies. And we grouped them in not in chronological order, uh, but in thematic order. Uh, the first two has a lot to do with, uh, with, with romance. And uh, the second two have a lot to do with uh, life in America. Uh, with what we covered real life last week with guest Ethan Warren, where it is a uh, supposed documentary on a typical American family. And this is about, uh, an Amer- I think, the idea of the American dream. Two yuppies, two baby boomers uh, giving up on uh, Reagan's America and uh, ejecting themselves from society, leaving society, removing themselves from society, wink, wink. And uh, trying to find themselves just like they did in Easy Rider. I think uh, this is, I think it's hard to parse what's considered his best movie. I think if you look at general, like, retrospective accolades, this is generally considered his best movie. It's got the Criterion Collection. It was on the AFI's, it's the only one of his movies that was on AFI's films, uh, 100 Laughs, Best Comedies of All Times List. It was the first Albert Brooks movie. Um, I saw, um, I know most people, I think their first exposure was Defending Your Life and it's uh, repetition on cable, but I think, um, I think this kind of has the probably 
uh, the most, uh, I, I don't know, this or Defending Your Life, I think, has the most probably cultural cachet. The thing that we've been talking about all month is that none of Albert Brooks' movies were, uh, well, he was not a frequent, he didn't make a, a lot of movies. Um, he's, he made seven movies in his entire, so far in his entire life. And uh, none of his movies were particularly successful. I mean, this movie had a $4 million budget. Um, it made $10 million. It was amazingly well-reviewed. But, you know, the mo- they were small movies with small scope that did okay uh, at the box office. Adjusted for inflation, I think the $4 million budget would be something like $8 trillion. And, you know, made about $40 trillion at the box right. office. I'm trying to adjust this for the inflation dystopia that Fox News is telling me we're heading to, Rick. So sorry if that's no, that's good. Are off. It, yeah, it seems it yeah. seems right. The um, context is important, I think. Yeah. So uh, I will note to David Clark, wonderful guest. Uh, this is one of their favorite movies of all time. Uh, they were supposed to be on this episode, and unfortunately, a confluence of timing that we were not anticipating meant that they were not able to join us. So we may do a part two. Uh, of this episode uh, to hear David's thoughts on the movie mm-hmm. at some point. But uh, Rick, this this felt like a perfect uh, perfect movie to invite Rick to do because it seems very much your shit, Rick. And maybe that's incorrect. Maybe you hated this and this was a waste of time. But uh, I, I kind of – I reached out to you going, well, we love having Rick on the show. He hasn't been on in six months. Uh, let's get him back on. And this movie seems like something he would love. And Rick said, Hey, just like Peter, I've never seen this shit. You're talking to me about <laughs> two, two times in a row. Mosquito coast. Never fucking heard of it until you mentioned it. Uh, yeah, Rick threatened to wallop you. If you kept talking, talking sideways, I know, but he's as always lately, he's had a lot to promote. So he demanded to be, on the show. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. uh, so I think the first, the first, you know, this, Peter, this is your last of the Albert Brooks movies, I think, unimpeachable classics uh, or uh, only minorly impeachable classics that we're going to watch. Rick, it was your first time watching this. What did you guys just generally think of this? Yeah. Rick, you go first. Okay, sure. Yeah, no, I I loved it a lot. You were right to think it would be my my shit. But uh, yeah, my my Albert Brooks experience is pretty limited, honestly. Uh, I saw Defending Your Life in theaters. And I really liked it, and I've never revisited it. And uh, he's like one of these fixture, like comedy fixtures that I know his like influence is really apparent. People, he's like famous for that, but yeah. I've never visited uh, his actual stuff. I just I don't know why. So this was a good excuse to watch it, and it was great. So you haven't seen just to clarify, have you not seen Real Life Modern Romance or uh, Defending Your Life since you were I guess like ten? That's right. Oh, I was okay. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, ten or eleven, I guess. Eleven. This was right. Sorry, it must be a little older because this would have been the year after yeah. your famous Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves story, right? Because Spending Your Life was ninety two. <laughs> My famous, yeah, yeah. So did you, uh, did you, did you hope that any uh, made it onto Watchopedia? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've been telling him to take it down. I don't know why it's still up there. You didn't see, <laughs> you didn't like see Defending Your Life on the auspices that you'd be able to make out with a thirty year old or anything. No, no. That no, was just, just Robin. I think she was like... Well, that's only Kevin Costner movies. Kevin Costner was the, uh, you know... He's an aphrodisiac. Like, Albert an aphrodisiac. Brooks is very much not. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't think anyone... I, just, I don't think this film really really revs anybody's engines. Or gets I do think running. 
I do think that's a really good point on Albert Brooks being kind of a because you're right. Like his movies were not that successful. They didn't get like the we've talked about that all month. Like they didn't get a million Academy Award nominations. He was kind of seen as Woody Allen uh, light, although although we've spent a lot of time this month kind of saying like how different um, his protagonists are. In most, that's cases, actually yeah. I look forward to hearing you guys talk about that because I just had that conversation with someone yesterday talking about doing this uh, this episode, and we were talking about how different the two of them are. Yeah, I think, you know, they got a reputation for being like, you know, talky comedies with uh, with, you know, the main characters foibles as a huge part uh, of, yeah. the, of the of the show played by the director themselves. That's also writing it. So there's the connection there. I think that where we've really aligned on the differences is that Woody Allen has a much more um, Larry David like approach where the thing about Curb Your Enthusiasm is that Larry David is an asshole to everyone around him, but secretly he is a lot of times in the right. And that's kind of how the show portrays him. And I think that Larry David would think a lot of times that his character is in the right. And that works well for Kirby Enthusiasm. That's how I feel about Woody Allen movies, though, too. Like, he is he's someone who, yeah, is sometimes does stupid things and says the wrong thing. And, you know, he's a little bit too honest or too good at cutting into what makes a human. But, like, most of his movies end with him in a generally good place and a happy ending. And I think the movies see him as a hero. And I think the Albert Brooks movies very much, like, do not see him as a hero. <laughs> like, I, I don't think Albert Brooks sees the Albert Brooks characters. And if he does see his characters as a hero, he should be locked away if you've seen real life or modern romance. Because um, those people, as Ethan Warren so eloquently put last week, are a problem to everyone around them. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, uh, Lost in America has some softening of that. I think this, the true softening, at least from a character growth standpoint, comes in defending your life, which I think they they make it makes kind of a nice four movie arc. But yeah, I his you're right. His influence is huge, and people know him from the Simpsons episodes. He had a lot of influence on comedy, like Steve Martin uh, when he did stand up in the early '70s and late '60s. But like, he is more known for being someone who's um, very inspiring and like a comedy legend, as opposed to I think putting the type of work that a lot of mainstream viewers would be aware of. Like, his his two biggest roles that people know him of, besides The Simpsons, would, of course, be the, you know, Finding Nemo, Finding Dory movies, which he's very good in, but I don't think, like, necessarily align well with, like, where he made his name in comedy. <laughs> and Broadcast News, which is very good, but directed by a different Brooks. Um, also, uh, Drive was the touchstone for the Oh, Drive, yeah. Yesterday, yeah. Great, great call. Yeah, yeah, and which drive is like, um, <clears throat> well, not, I, I guess most people would describe it as a subversion because he, yeah. uh, you know, Albert Brooks was kind of known as like a funny guy and an approachable funny guy, and he had, and by the time <laughs> Drive had come out, he had already done Mother and, and some more approachable and Defending Your Life, like more approachable, sweeter movies, uh, unlike his more acerbic seventies and, and eighties movies. Uh, it's not quite a subversion, I would say, in a literal sense, because um, he played assholes since, at, well, at a minimum, modern romance. It's just that this one was like a particularly well, real life violent. His one. first movie, he's a huge yeah. asshole. He burns down that family's house. Um, but it should be noted, Drive's a good touchstone because I mean, the director of Drive said that he cast. Albert Brooks or wanted to cast Albert Brooks as this like scary asshole because of how terrified he was seeing him, uh, you know, verbally accost his wife in public in watching Lost in Lost in America. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know that. 
it, it is like one of those those movies that the um the sharp bite of it is the movie like the movie uh is not a, a fun silly rom no uh as as people go from one side of the country to the other it's not um a national lampoon's vacation no or the great outdoors or any of the sort of 80s road comedies that like are like cute and fun but also you know have their own problems but, like cute and fun and largely you know the family's going to be okay in the end yeah. this is a movie that like <laughs> literally by the end of the first night they are kind of fucked <laughs> um, yeah it, it actually it was really really uh it it uh upended my expectations a lot because i guess i thought i guess i was anticipating something like national Lampoon's Vacation. yeah i, I was I so when i first saw I it in college thought. i think i i think my i didn't like this as much as i thought i was going to because that poster has their heads buried in the sand like ostriches i remember the back of the vhs has them like with our you know in wacky like the crossing guard costume and stuff like yeah, that sure. and that's what i was anticipating and yeah it is uh it's sad and depressing and they do not end up I mean they end up fine somewhat but like they immediately consistently sell out everything that they're saying all the time. It's it's uh it's a very like it's funny but it is it's I think it's pretty bleak. Yeah 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 I mean the fact that they're fi- quote unquote fine in the end um is uh, a product more of their privilege than it is like yeah. uh like them managing to like scrape themselves up you know pull themselves up by their bootstraps or learning the right lessons like they learn they work one day each <laughs> in a working class job and then they're like absolutely the fuck not new yeah. york sounds great yeah the uh i guess we'll we'll talk about it when we get into the plot but it's like the the speed with which First of all, that they uh, they lose everything like immediately, yeah. And then the speed with which, yeah, they they just like, yeah, they sell out their principles immediately. You know? Yes, uh, it's lovely. And then the way that they argue with each other about really what dropping out means, like it's it's so... they had all that cocaine. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's that's so funny. Like, what do you mean they didn't so... have a nest egg? What about all that cocaine? That's a nest egg. <laughs> I have so much to say about this in like a modern context because the specific idea of them selling everything and moving into their RV is is, is has been a huge, huge um, movement in the past two yeah. years. It's something that people have always done because people uh, understandably become burned out with capitalism. Um, but uh, people have to continually relearn the lesson in, in America. You have to continually relearn the lesson that the protagonists of... Uh, this movie do which is like their privilege is both um a, a it's it's a gilded cage basically yeah like, it's it's uh it's lovely and they have a much easier time of of getting their basic needs met and you know they're 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 not focused on day to day survival they're focused on do we get a big enough house and am I respected enough at work um but at the end of the day like they can't escape that because that's all they know how to do. Like, they, they can't actually go live out in their RV. They can't actually go live out on the road. And it's like, a, it's like a, you could, this movie could also probably pair well with um, pausing every 20 minutes and uh, reading articles about uh, RV sales going through the roof. 
And then uh, six months later, RV sales, uh, RV returns and used sales of RVs going through the roof. And then eventually uh, the RV market is o- is over flooded with RVs right now. Um, like <laughs> anybody that wants an RV can go get one for a reasonable price again. Well, and the other thing that I think is so apt about this movie that does relate to the modern context a lot, because... I I actually, you know, I, I have someone that I worked with that, like, went and did the RV life, like, sold their house and did the RV life. They still worked at the same jo- job. They just did it, you know. Uh, um, yeah, it's different in the world in the era of internet and Wi-Fi. Yeah, they did. Or I think people that I know that have kind of dropped out of American society and, and you know, gone and lived in a Central American country or something like that. And I think one thing this movie gets 100% right is... Which I think speaks to the both the concept of exiting society in a in not quietly, but like very loudly in every chance you get <laughs> while participating in society. Yeah. But but uh, you know, there's the specifics of uh, like uh, the boomer thing, which is which is definitely worth getting into. But I think as it relates to you know even millennials and and Gen X and stuff like that, is that idea of it the action of being removed, removing yourself from society is something. That makes you a both above society and something that society should recognize and reward. So it's this weird thing where uh, this happens throughout the movie, right? It's best epitomized by like when they go to the the casino and they ask for a room, or uh, and there or later on. It happens throughout the movie where it's like just to let you know, I want to I want to make a big announcement that I have exited society. So thus. I haven't followed the conventions of all these normies here who had to reserve a room and make plans in advance. <laughs> and also, I would like your best room, please, because <laughs> of the action of Dick. And that happens later on when he has to ask for the money back. The idea of like, look, all these gamblers, we know they deserve to lose money. We yeah. have exited society. <laughs> and, and like, I hear that all the time of like – um from uh, people that I know that have like, you know, I've gone to live in the forest and it's like uh, – or something like that and are constantly, A, announcing when they rejoin society to go out for a night of drinking or something with friends. That's all they talk about is how they've left society and then want their – and then do that thing of like, well, obviously, you know, I need to really conserve my money for for my living out of as you as you may have heard i no longer live in so society. yeah if you could pick up the bill here i would really appreciate it. it's like it's like that it's like i want to be rewarded by society for my removal from society yeah what, what does he say to the concierge he's like uh he's like well you know we we dropped out to follow our principles we don't do reservations anymore and he's yeah. like well we we do so. yeah we still do. <laughs> it's perfect because yes, there's a there's an aspect of that that goes to like an entitled generational thing, which is is definitely worth getting into, and and we will. But it's not it's it's not entirely generational. That idea of like being rewarded for being uh, above society, and again. You know, there's the other side of it, too, that idea, like, criticizing society, the famous, like, cartoon, like, oh, you (laughs) participate in society, and yet you, you know, and yet you criticize it. How interesting, or whatever it is. And, like, that that other side of it's there, too, but this idea of, like... Um, that 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 there, there's a aspects of society that are not worth investing in and saving and improving, and and. Is 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 something that I think is is even somewhat more specific in some ways to to our generation than Albert Brooks' generation. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. I so while while we're there, I want to talk about like my my COVID obsession, which was uh, following mostly young women. I did not follow Gabby Petito. I think that was her name, the woman who was murdered. But mostly young women who uh, had opted to. Um, live the sort of nomadic lifestyle built out RVs and like in a strange sense like they had they usually always would have other jobs or other means of income sometimes they were trust fund babies but in a weird sense them being out there and posting about it and posting pictures of them and their beautiful dog um and posting nature shots and um promoting like the new uh protein powder or whatever they were working on or their lifestyle brand like this stuff was oddly enough in a weird cyclical <clears throat> way paying for the lifestyle. Yeah. So like, yeah. In a strange sense, like that that the thing you're talking about, Aaron, where like people will come back and and then they're like, oh man, I can't, uh, you, you you strange people that live in society in your strange ways. <laughs> um, well, not yeah. like me, so elevated. Like literally, <laughs> yeah. mo- most of the income that a lot of these the, these fan lifers have, it either comes from. Let's ignore the trust fund kids because that's just like really like yeah rich kids are gonna go play play act as as cowboys right like it, it just happens but like it's kind of what happens for a lot of them they're a lot of them are um either they're acting in an unsustainable manner like they're blowing cash really fast but they don't really want to admit that um or um they have to actively promote the lifestyle in order to stay in the lifestyle and I followed a bunch of these TikTokers and YouTubers who posted about their van setups. And I got, like, obsessed with it because I just found it so interesting. S- mine was obviously, like, burnout from capitalism. And, you know, that that that, that didn't go away. Uh, surprise, surprise. <coughs> um, but the um, – and I ended up buying a home during COVID. So, like, like – An, R- an RV? Yeah. I, I went the opposite direction of buying an RV. Um, I bought a home that is in one place, um, unless the big one comes to California, in which case it will be in several places. Um, the Yeah, you're not ruling out that it could never move. <laughs> it moves every few weeks or months. I mean, it's just, you know, degrees of moving. Uh, it does not have wheels. Does that clarify? Um, and uh, the... The, 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 this obsession was not just because, like, you know, I was burned out with capitalism, but also, like, I was kind of, like, sort of being, like, do I need to start prepping for the apocalypse? Like, do I need to start figuring out ways for us to be able to get out of town and go camp in the desert for a little while until things cool down? Like, uh, do I what have What lifestyle ability? would I promote? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You got to figure that out pre-apocalypse. All the apocalypse hordes knows what kind of muscle map to buy. Yeah, this, we love to watch is going to slowly becoming like a, a podcast about canning and get your bonkers. Curing meats and shit. <laughs> I mean, all of us learned how to make sourdough starters. So That's like it, it's it did happen. We love to po- bake. Yeah. We we love <laughs> We we just love to remember because there's no more uh, electricity, so we just remember our favorite movies. Yeah, and then we are, and then we're not arguing about interpretations. We're arguing about literally what, what happened. happened. Yeah, <laughs> we have different editions of like Roger Ebert's great films yeah. books, and like one edition makes an obvious mistake about like a George Romero movie, and we're like, no, I'm pretty sure. Um, but yeah, so it was also the apocalypse thing where I was just like. Okay, I need, like, maybe I need to start thinking about, like, the way to hide was I was like, oh, I'm buying camping gear. But 
I was buying stuff that like was in some way like tiptoeing myself towards uh, survival gear and I kind of worked my way out of that habit um but like I did build a bed at one point I built a bed platform into the back of my RAV4 so that I could store food and my camp stove and all this stuff under two to three bed people. platform um well if <laughs> depends how, how small they are um do they like living in something that's essentially i meant on the top coffin? of the bed no oh well, yeah and then on, yeah oh sorry i thought you meant underneath they would they would have to be very small um and then on top of the bed was uh yeah it was uh, a few foam foam toppers and it, it, it like uh i went out camping in the desert a few times uh with that setup and it was lovely uh, cause I could just open up the sunroof and just stare at the stars and it was so great. Uh, and then when my, uh, wife spent one night in there with me, cause we're both uh, tall people, she described, <laughs> she described the space that I had built as a coffin. Uh, so, <laughs> so, you're like, Hey, we're going to need one of those in the apocalypse too, honey. So <laughs> it's dual purpose. Yeah. yeah. The most important thing is, yeah. Repurposing. That's the whole, you want to just be blowing around <laughs> loose out there. <laughs> So yeah, I got into this. So I got into RV culture to a point where I went camping. I never left my job, and I built a coffin, but not to the point <laughs> of the protagonist of this movie. Right? Yeah. Well, and I, I do think like it, that does get a little tricky, right? Like I think I think the movie, these characters specifically are, uh, like you you don't have to hold them up as like uh conflicted in any ways. They. They are not, like, exiting society. They are spending all their time in society. They are doing it with a lot of money they, they earned from from society and, and, like, again, the a huge place of privilege. They are – and, you know, they're never actually taking any real risk because uh, even when they feel like they've lost their nest egg and they, you know, uh, all of a sudden anything could fall apart – they have easily executable backup plans, which is what happens at the end of the movie. They could go start at a new company. Like they you you called it a gilded cage. You're right. They're they're they you know, they never actually had any sort of risk. So I think from like their perspective, this idea that they're doing something like honorable or whatever else, it's it's not even it's not even really a part of the conversation. I do think it gets a little more complicated <laughs> when you talk about like yeah, I hate capitalism and I want to go live out uh, in a commune somewhere or something like that. And we're going to have a self-sustainable like ecosystem like yeah. that. That is, I think, and I, I know someone that, you know, has done that since they left college um, that I used to be friends with in high school and stuff like that. And he rules like what they're, you know, they're doing cool stuff. And he, they you know, they promote their farm and stuff like that that just helps support their society. It's, it's you know, it's. I, I do think that is different than that idea of like I am I am going to be constantly, you know his but his thing is all like positive and like, uh you know he supports his societal callings outside of that is around like equality and all the other stuff and like yeah yeah and that's and I think that's the difference and I think too many people in our generations have confused the act of giving up possessions or some semblance of possessions or taking any semblance of risk, even one where there's a net as the same thing as like doing good. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's also, you know, the, the whole premise of the movie starts from, you know, we're not, it's not just that we're not talking about like anarchist traveling kids or, uh, you know, eco, people setting up eco communes or anything yeah. like that. We're, we're actually talking about someone who's 
the impetus for doing all this was that he didn't get the promotion he was entitled to, that he felt yeah. he was entitled to. So it's not even like- I called all my friends for a week and they all agreed I would get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like he believes that he ought to be the VP of operations or whatever. And if yeah. he can't have it, then, you know, he's going to throw a fit. And that's what happens. Like, yeah. the the whole Easy Rider vision is, um, I mean, I think that, you know, the comic juice of that comes from the fact that he's, he's throwing a tantrum, basically. Yeah. He's he's full of shit. He it, it's a it's a thumb nose to to the society that he wants to be a part of, and he feels like he was wrong, and that's why he spends the entire movie letting people know that he's better than them. <laughs> yeah, he didn't like wake up one day. I, <laughs> he didn't wake up one day. He was he looking at Porsche, like not Mercedes, Mercedes. Colors. Yeah. An hour before he decided to leave society. Forever. One of one of his many what's implied to be like a, a routine and continued like uh, just endless conversation with the, <laughs> the sales rep at the Mercedes office. He's just trying to figure out a way to get the leather seats for free. Yeah, I did. That was one thing I know. Because I mean, I, I work in an office job and, you know. This idea that like you could, I, I, but I'm very busy. Like the idea that there was a time when like you, if you were a certain level of an executive or, or or leader or something, that you just had this office that you just sat in while you leisurely called salespeople that your secretaries knew to buy stuff with the money you were earning sitting in the office is uh in like in the exact level of like why everyone hates boomers because that was the economy they cre- like well like you know white well off. Uh, but yeah. that was the economy they created themselves, where they could literally just sit back and, I guess, make exploit other people's labor and and talk about what and their secretary knew how to distract the Mercedes dealership uh, so that they could – he had more time to decide on his Porsche <laughs> color or whatever. Fucking insanity. <laughs> yeah. So it wouldn't be justified if I felt like he actually got screwed. Um, because he, he has a meltdown and it's like, yeah, sometimes people get chosen above you in office positions. Like, don't go to lunch with this guy. Yeah. Yeah. And and like, I, this guy, this guy apparently doesn't serve your, your best interest. I don't think that he actually got screwed. Uh, so when this moment happens, I'm already seeing, I mean, it's, it happened before when he's had this long conversation about the Mercedes. And is Albert Brooks a car guy? I don't know. Like, does he have the Jerry Seinfeld disease? Because this is also a plot point in Defending Your Life, where he's like really into getting this BMW. I think uh, a lot of people, you know, David said it well, too, and a couple other like reviews of, of friends of the show, like, I think I saw in Letterbox that it was just like he's just very good at identifying what makes his generation the worst, and this idea, this obsession yeah. with cars as a status symbol is very Reagan era. Yeah, it's a it's a bourgeois signifier. Yeah, it very much works as a as a totemic uh, a totemic standing for like why um, this man's life has no meaning, but like <laughs> to him, getting that car is going to give it meaning, and then. Getting the RV is going to give it. Oh, sorry. Between that, getting the senior vice president position is going to give his life meaning. And the converse. And, and one thing that I think that uh, Albert Brooks is better about than um, Woody Allen and a lot of the the sort of um, anxious comedian voices of the seventies going into the eighties uh, is that he does spend time to like uh, empathize and, and understand like his. Um, women characters voices and the fact that there's a scene of just like his wife 
um, played by uh, Julie Haggerty, um, who's great in this. Really good. Yeah, Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. He actually says has a scene of her talking about basically it sounds like basically she might be on the verge of divorcing him. But like this is what happens to him. Like he gets a he gets a new position. They've been together since they were in college, like when they're like 18, 19. And every time he gets a new position, it doesn't actually help him, but he just keeps chasing it and putting in in, in like, you know, more sacrifices to get to it or what whatever those sacrifices are viewed as. And he's just more miserable and anxious all the time with more and more more stuff going on. And like we have a moment where she's like kind of like on the verge of breaking off things with him unless, you know, th- something changes. And then he has this false epiphany. And the car is such a perfect totem of that that chase, right? That like, yeah. if I get this, I'll be secure. If I get this, I'll really be thriving. If I get this, I'll feel like, you know, I, I've succeeded. I also think it's, it's noteworthy that, you know, it's, he doesn't get the car. He's not like at the lot. It's like this sort of aspirational thing where he spends all this time going over the details of this like fantasy car he'll have one day that will like, you know, imbue things with meaning. And uh, it's, it, that's how, that's his relation to it. It's in this, this aspiration. Yeah. You're right though, Peter too. Like his wife calls out like you, I think the exact like conversation is like this, this is the promotion. I'll finally be happy. And she's like, well, you said that about the last few too. And he's Mm -hmm. like, but this is the one that I've actually been working towards, you know? And um, yeah, it's, it's the, it's the, you know, common capitalist thing of like America is a big place and you can dream big and you can get all this stuff. And like, all they have is their stuff. You know, she's having that breakdown around like, I spent how long choosing the color of these walls for this new house that we're getting. And I hate the colors that I chose. And now I'm going to have to spend the rest of my life in our house looking at colors that I hate. Um, (laughs) You know, it's like, yeah, it's, it's not about like, do I have a functioning car? Like, you know, I'm, I, I am not a car guy at all. My, my concern about cars is like, will it not break down? Uh, And, and, you know, does it have at least all wheel drive because I live in a place where it snows constantly? Um, Those are my, oh, can I plug my phone into it so I can listen to podcasts? (laughs) Those are my, if if, checks all those boxes, I guess also fits my kids. Checks all those boxes. (laughs) Uh, also, good. the idea that like because you, you get tired, you don't want to ride on that rail. But also, you want to have the camera on the rear view because yeah. it's a big car. You want to be able to send it back. But seat, also, seat warmers too. You got to have seat warmers. Ideally, but also, some lunatic seats. has you built work a hard, coffin. You deserve to play hard. Yeah. Ideally, some <laughs> lunatic has built a coffin in the back seat as well. Um, you can look up at the stars. You can look up at the stars and feel like uh, I, I have no, no more time left on the earth. Um, but uh, but the idea of like someone having like, yeah, a first name basis with a car dealership guy where you're still debating. Like I have the book of all the different color combinations and I'm looking through it to find the perfect one. It just it seems like uh and I think this movie rightly identifies it as just a fool's errand. Like right. in what in what world is your life satisfaction gonna be met by whatever color your fucking car is? Yeah, I guess that's what I'm saying though, is that I, I feel like that it's also implying that his satisfaction is in this conversation, this like attention yes. that he gets. You know what I mean? Because he's getting does have to all do the, the thing. Getting to yeah, he has all have, the options. He, in the he position can, to do the thing. Yeah, yeah. He just wants someone to listen to him. Yeah. Yeah, I and I think that's I mean that is I think where it, the movie does turn to 
um, really kind of about the boomer generation, that idea of like, it's not necessarily about um, what you do with the power that you have, but the ability to wield the power is mm-hmm. what the what the ultimate goal is. Mm-hmm. I uh, but yeah, I I, I feel like we're kind of hitting on what the main themes of this are because uh, what the main themes of Lost in America is because um, it's not a movie about slapstick humor and finding the silliness in America. Um, generally, the people <laughs> they run into are pretty normal. They're not that like they're they're not really like overt parodies that much like i the, generally they're like friendly ish it's just like the systems that they exist in are are so brutal and unforgiving right like well i think um, they I think he's a some, some punk fucking youths right um, like <laughs> god that scene made me laugh probably too hard for one of the <laughs> but um <laughs> uh I think that the, the, the great joke about this movie is that, yeah, you're right, like in a vacation or even like a road movie comedy, the idea is, is that you have two well-meaning people who continually run into like characters or caricatures or, you know, uh, um, oh, here's the crazy person who does this and here's the the couple that's a little too friendly and then they try to sleep with us or something like that. Yeah. And instead, everyone sees them as the parodies of American life. Like, that's, I think, one of the geniuses of the movie. Like, when they go to that small town and he's like, well, I, I, I want to apply for this crossing guard position and my previous salary was $100,000 a year. Like, he's not laughing at him out of cruelty. He's laughing at him because he is a, a caricature of, like, how, uh, you know, uh, L.A. excess and Britain. The idea that he would come here yeah. to try to see what jobs they have that pay around that area. <laughs> he's like, let me, let me look at my $100,000 file. <laughs> yeah. Like, he is the joke. The guy with the job or the guy where he's like, oh, yeah, I, you know, I expected you to be able to furnish your own uh, truck. A grown man with an RV is not like the right person for this <laughs> job. Like, you know, Albert Brooks is the joke in that scene, not the yeah. other guy. Yeah, you're, I think you're right. Like, the you know, the Chevy Chase character in Vacation or someone like that is like a. For the most part, the only the only sane man around, right? Running into like loonies all the time, <laughs> yeah. whereas it's just inverted in this case. Which I think is the Albert Brooks like having watched uh, you know four of his best movies here, like in close succession. As we mentioned, like that, I think that is the secret. Like he is not the secret hero of any of his movies, right? right. He's not the he's not the funny acerbic guy who yeah he he sometimes alienates people but he's got all the wisdom he is a joke or a hurtful person or uh someone who's causing a lot of damage and pain like he has he he consistently portrays himself as completely unsympathetic mm-hmm. I, I i think that's really what it comes down to is the separation between between him and a lot of his his peers is that a lot of his peers were probably nicer to themselves yeah, I mean, when did, like, Steve Martin and him are, are compared a lot because they both kind of pioneered a similar style of comedy in the 70s and were, you know, both recognized in, like, these Saturday Night Live spots. You know, their their careers diverged from there. But, like, even Steve Martin's first efforts, like The Jerk or something like that, like, he's always the hero of his movies. Sure. Like, and Albert even if Brooks he's is, just a pitiful version of a hero, like I, yeah. you know, I pity, I pity this guy. Like that's better than not usually what I get out of Albert Brooks. Yeah, Albert Brooks is it, it, 
until the like the minor positive turn in the last 20 minutes of defending your life essentially from 1979 to 1992 he portrayed completely unsympathetic people you don't even pity that you get frustrated with like main characters on screen i think even his character in broadcast news is a huge asshole too his other mm-hmm. big role yeah like he's, that, he's just so good at the like dickhead you don't realize a dickhead a dickhead yeah. who makes incredible first impressions like uh dickhead who you grow tired of like that that archetype uh he's incredible at it i mean that's also like <laughs> hank scorpio is obviously from the simpsons <laughs> obviously like an extreme example but like the reason that hank scorpio works is because albert brooks can like do something that sounds so friendly and so welcoming but it's actually like fairly malevolent <laughs> i mean yeah. also part of the joke of that episode is that he like is is really kind to homer and treats homer with respect the basically the entire episode like homer is pretty much never uh being pursued <laughs> by hank scorpio like yeah. that's part of the joke and the, and the reason that's one of the greatest episodes of tv of all time so but great. like him sort of like being able to turn that like well i'm a charming asshole into like I'm, I am the worst human being you've ever met as part of the reason Hank Scorpio is a character that's stuck in people's minds. And then they brought him back sort of in the Simpsons movie as a fake version of Hank Scorpio, but they canonically different for some reason. Right. Well, but also like the comparison to the jerk is fun because, you know, Albert Brooks's thing like is not is he is self-aware. He's self-aware, but he's so cynical that he yeah. just plows right ahead. Like that cynicism mm-hmm. is gone from. Steve Martin stuff, which is replaced with like this, you know, kind of genial sweetness. He's like clueless about how he's alienating people. Albert Brooks never is. He's he's got an agenda that he's like, like when he's telling the uh, guy in the casino, he's like, you know, look, these are these are professional opinions you're getting. These aren't just like some <laughs> I'm not a guy off the street. So no, yeah, these are people pay good money for these opinions. Yeah, yeah I think that's a hundred percent right because. Broadcast news factors into this as well, but like in some ways, he's also ahead of the curve, not just on boomers being the worst or like exiting the society like culture, but he's also he's very much locked into like the nice, charming, funny guy who's not, you know, not a sports star and not a the best looking person in the world. Um can also be a terrible asshole, which is something that like we are more and more aware of. Like after you know, in the eighties, it was that idea. Like the, you know, the nerds were always the good guys, right? Yeah, in right. a field yeah. against against the jocks. And Albert Brooks was very quick into like modern romance touches on this. Broadcast news very much touches on this, which is like, yeah, he is the lovable schlub that Holly Hunter isn't magnetically attractive with. And in most movies, that means he's the default good guy. But what if that guy's also a huge asshole and, you know, gaslights people and is rude and cruel and stuff like that? And that, you know, modern romance hits at that really hard. And even here, like, you know, he's he's not the old reliable person. He's the type of person that kind of will scream at his wife and have a complete meltdown uh in front of uh in front of everyone at hoover dam <laughs> it's crazy oh it's lovely um <laughs> i feel like i it feel is, like we're oh go ahead Rick. it is very funny that in, in their lowest moment they're still sort of continuing with their tour of america they're yeah. like well we have to go see the hoover dam <laughs> <laughs> i do like there's the I do like when they kind of like they have the fight and then like she leaves. We'll talk about it in the plot thing. And I, but I, when they're thinking of what their next game plan is, and he's like, well, 
the bright side of this is we'll probably stay together forever because that didn't that didn't make us get divorced like losing the nest egg. <laughs> Just, like you know, they were talking at the beginning of the movie of like this beautiful like getting remarried and renewing their vows. Yeah, they went and to start, go get re- yeah. and starting afresh. And now there's a, a like just an acceptance that like well after. All the toxic shit and terribleness we've just put each other through, we're still together. So I guess that means we'll be together forever. So that's that's something positive that's come out of this. <laughs> like, can you imagine a less less like? And the fact that she, I mean, the the thing about it is that like, even though they both have different breaking points and they're both do things to each other that hurts the other person, like they are both the same. Right? Like, yeah, it reminds yeah. me oh, of yeah. somebody told me at one point that the phrase you're enough can either be the most comforting thing in the world or the like worst thing you can say to a partner. Because if that person is feeling like really down and like doesn't feels inadequate saying you're enough is like it's a it's a compliment. It's saying like you, you don't need to be anything else than you are. Um, but in the, but if Albert Brooks says you're enough, what he means is like, <laughs> yeah, you're enough. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's the difference between like. Not having seconds because you're full and not having seconds because you didn't like the meal. No, I think yeah. I've enough. Like the- right, right. <laughs> I've right. endured enough food that I didn't really like to get enough of my plate eaten to not be rude. I know we're <laughs> about to jump into the plot, I think. But uh, one other note about Julie Haggerty is that I I do think that it's a uh, credit to the movie that they don't turn her into like, uh, you know, like the long suffering foil where she's actually yeah. like. You know, she's not really the good one either. No one's good. They're just terrible, Peter. Yeah, she yeah. has this. Amazing Her losing the nest egg the- is like the most important because I think in a in a worse movie, it's him that loses it too. Like you know, it's all his dream and stuff like that. And I think her like being like, "Hey, yeah, I did lose all that money because I I've had a breaking point too. Like your big your big thing was we need to leave society. Well, I wanted to keep hitting twenty two. <laughs> <laughs> and and I really do think I really do think that that um that that sequence where she's like kind of coming out of a she's been in a a bender essentially like yeah. she didn't realize she was a gambling addict and she just you know really indulged that and she's coming out of it is both so simultaneously like hilarious and also kind of like like heartbreaking yeah mm-hmm. she's so because she's so needing of true spontaneity and this trip isn't actually doing that and he he she's still stuck with him like right like and so um her her brain just sort of her subconscious just sort of guides her to this act of of, of uh self-harm this act of self-destruction at least financial self-destruction um and the way that the movie takes the sort of because Julie Haggerty is so great in like comedy movies very often because she is has sort of like a ditzy quality, but it like betrays an intelligence. Yeah. And um, that sort of ditzy quality, but like that the movie gives her so much more to do there is like why I love her performance, because like she it, it, yeah, like you said, if she was just the scold, this movie would be a much worse movie. A hundred percent. Like. Good word. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like why? Like it, it would be a, a fairly misogynistic movie about a man just dragging a woman through the through the mud. Right. Um, you know, maybe it would be in a roundabout way, not misogynist because it would be about why men suck. But like, you know, it, <laughs> I still don't think that that's worth the cost that you pay to waste Julie Haggerty. This movie refuses to waste Julie Haggerty and she refuses to waste herself because 
the way that she like comes out of that and she's like both self-justifying it to herself in ways that are true and also probably just ways that sound good in her head is just so charming her 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 in the kitchen uh making breakfast for him right after they've sort of accepted their fate <laughs> and she's sort of doing like tiny little exercises but she's not really doing anything and she's like made breakfast but like it's bre- it's food that they like brought from home like it's it's like all of those little moments where she's sort of like well i did this and then she delivers bad news with <laughs> a big big grin is so amazing like yeah. it's it's such a threaded performance because she manages to not be ditzy or light um in a way that many directors probably lesser directors would have cast her that well way. especially when they're the they're playing the you know the protagonist right the husband because you're 100 right the, so many of these movies lean towards skull to show like some sort of hero's journey or self-discovery that only benefits the husband who again a lot of times is the writer or director of these types of movies and you, you don't have that here and i think too you know now that we've wrapped up these four movies i we noted it early on about like how part of the reason that I think Albert Brooks, these movies have maintained a reputation as not just being uh, hysterically funny, but like I think their, their relationship has really opened up in a way that like the other broad 80s comedies hasn't, right? Like how many people watch Caddyshack? or trading places for the first time or stripes. And even though, as we've said, like I, I definitely have a place in my heart for all those movies. Cause I grew up with a lot of them. Like, I think a lot of people that watch them for the first time, you know, it's like, Oh yeah, some of that is really boring and not funny. And some of it is horrifically offensive. And, and some of it is like, is, is pretty funny. Um, and I think when people watch the Albert Brooks movies, they see something that is pretty consistently hilarious and insightful. And, um, you know, again, it's not that it's not like there's not anything in any of these movies. I think some of the past life stuff and defending your life and, you know, a word here or there uh, that, you know, that shouldn't be said or occur in these movies. But like what's what is impressive about all four of these movies is they come from a time of 1979 to 1992 where comedies are I can't think of comedies from that era that don't have like things that are offensive or problematic and his movies for the most part are not any of that almost all of the almost all of the uh derision is always directed to albert brooks yeah pretty impressive yes yeah very 100 percent um so yeah 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 do you guys want to talk more about lost in america let's do it do yeah The plot of Lost in America. So there's this guy. His name is Albert Brooks. Uh, not in the movie. Fuck. I, I'm terrible at like putting up their names at the beginning. David Howard. David Howard and Linda Howard. So David Howard, he's a marketing uh, uh, exec, not quite an executive yet, marketing director, creative force. Uh, and him and his wife, Linda, played by Julie Haggerty, they're, they're about to upgrade. He thinks he's getting a big promotion at work they're gonna get a new house 
Uh, and they're kind of talking about the movers and the moving anxiety that's happening and generally anxious about, you know, a f- a success and what that's going to mean for all the things that they want. Um, and so the next day at work, he goes to the office uh, in, in kind of the movie tipping its hat to this guy's an asshole. Everyone that he know, everyone that he works with knows that he's up for a big promotion and is about to go to that meeting. So you also understand, like, this is the type of guy who has told everyone in his office that he's about to get promoted and do better. And I've worked with those people before. Yeah. And they're the worst. So yeah, this, this movie does a great job of dropping those kind of character details without making a big deal about it. Yeah. A hundred percent. So he um, he goes into his boss's office. Everyone gives him high fives, wishes him good luck. And his boss has this other guy there from New York. And he's like, hey, great news. We got Ford. We're going to be the biggest uh, uh, advertising firm, marketing firm in the in the country. So you're going to move to New York in two weeks and work for this guy. And he's like, what are you talking about? I don't want to move to New York. I was, I was up for the job of senior vice president. And he's like, well, you're too valuable for that. Like, you, you're you a creative force. We need you to work on this campaign uh, from New York. And he's like, but, you know, we promoted someone else who is not very creative and not very good at his job. <laughs> um, uh, and he, you know, he starts out just not in disbelief and then leads to, like, you know, telling his boss to fuck off and how dare he do this. And he had all these dreams when he was a kid and he gave up his life for this company. Now, the company is not giving him what he what he needs. In one of my favorite lines of the movie, he said, I called everyone I knew over the last week and told him I was going to get this, that I was worried I wasn't going to get this promotion. And they all told me I was going to get it. But I knew you were going to screw me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is great because, uh, yeah, I... Can you imagine if, like, one of your friends called you out of the blue and then finds out he just calls everyone else in his his phone book to ask about a promotion that you know nothing about, whether he's going to get it? But anyway, he gets escorted out by security. He says a bunch of very hurtful things to his boss as he leaves, like, don't go to lunch with him and says he's going to reveal a secret that he wears a toupee. (laughs) (laughs) He'll lie to you at lunch. (laughs) Our toupee deal is off. (laughs) <laughs> so he uh, he goes and shows up at uh, Linda's work and is like, get out of here. Let's fuck on the table. And another line I don't want it to get crossed over because he's like, he's like, OK, he, he agrees. This is where I wrote in my notes. He's got a lot of Mosquito Coast energy <laughs> right now. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, 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 yeah. But he goes, uh, he's like, he wants to just fuck on her desk. And she's like, what are you talking about? No. And he's like, you're right. There's people you fuck in front of and people you don't fuck in front of. And we'll find the people you fuck in front of <laughs> and fuck in front of them for the rest of our lives. Which <laughs> is just an amazing, amazing line. Um, so he's all, you know, he's like psychotic giddy. Goes home. And when when Linda comes home, he's like, look. Look at how cheap houses are if you don't live in L.A. We could t- forget about like forget about the new house. Let's sell the house. Inflation's been great to us. We we can make one hundred forty thousand dollars on the house. We can sell things we don't need. We'll have two hundred thousand dollars after some other things to just go live in in America. Follow our dreams. Get out there. Give up on everything. Exit society. Drive around in a motorhome. Let, let's 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 stop there really yeah. quickly. All right, I'm not going to project on Rick. I have definitely also been like, wow, my house is worth way more than it was two years ago. What if I just cashed the fuck out and moved somewhere else? Hey, hey, hey Pete, we, uh, 
Carrie and I were watching it together and we both kind of exchanged a knowing look during <laughs> that scene. She's like, we, we've kind of had conversations like that. A little bit like that. Not entirely. Yeah. I, if, if, like, I love, I love living in California. There have been many times that, uh, there have been many times in the past couple years, especially, or I guess since 2017, that I've been very grateful to live in a blue state. Um, there's been <laughs> yeah. you know, times where I've been like, oh, I live in a blue state. Why does it not feel like it? Um, way more, way, way more of those times. Um, however, I'd be lying if I said every few months, I wasn't like, well, how much is natural beauty worth for me? <laughs> yeah, but you could also buy like a, you know, a, a farm in upstate New York, right? Or like, yeah. what, what, what's or a, what's a, what's 10 acres West. in the, you know. Yeah, I mean, UP I could move to Duluth, right? Yeah, what's, what's a house in Duluth going? Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so they're like, so he does all the math and goes, this isn't crazy. I put thought into it while being a complete psychopath. Um, and they do it. So he goes and he buys like a motorhome. He spends $45,000 on a motorhome, which seems pri- like, do, seems do, like a lot. Seems yeah. like a lot. I did the inflation. There's, oh, so there's how, a lot in this movie where I check how much it's worth in today's dollars. And yeah. it's $125,000 on a motorhome. Uh, not, not, uh, I was going to say is, uh, not out of range. Motorhomes are really expensive. Well, they are the one with it. It it browns the, uh, the the toaster browns your things for the microwave. (laughs) The microwave. (laughs) I was, so we, we can pause there because, well, I'm going to run, I'm going to race that because I want to talk about the browning scene and I don't know if we're going to get back to it, but so anyways, they do it. They, they get in the motorhome, they buy the new motorhome and they're, they're leaving and they're, you know, he's doing like the typical like dad shit of like. This is a historic moment. We're leaving the city never to return. Come on, come sit down up front so you can see the historic moment. Um, And they're excited about the microwave that brown stuff. Now, that grilled cheese, I get that this is a movie and there's props and people that make the food and stuff like that. That looked like a normal grilled cheese sandwich that you would make on a stove. So I, I didn't do any research on this. I don't think my microwave has a brown browning setting. Is there a um, broiler in the microwave? And I'm curious, yeah, like, why don't, why can't you make grilled cheese that looks like this anymore? Is it, was it a health thing? Was there, like, were they using asbestos to power the browning machinery? Like, is, is breaking? I, I think Rick is going to check to see if his microwave can brown things right now. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't brown anything. It doesn't brown. Guys, shit. I tested it. <laughs> Nothing is brown. <laughs> Rick, Rick, this is just like a hot you... cheese sandwich. Rick, it sounded like you didn't just like get up and leave the room. It sounded like you knocked the chair off from underneath you, knocked the microphone. <laughs> Sorry, my dog was barking. I gotta find time. out about this browning shit right now. <laughs> I was trying to stop my dog from barking and, and leave without uh without disturbing anybody. I I appreciate I appreciate it. Now I it's part of the show because we made so many funny jokes though, Rick. I don't know how to tell I, you that. I appreciate it, <laughs> but it sounded like you were like, let's let's take a look at this goddamn microwave. You know, my my microwave uh, was here when we got the house. It's like well, it has the settings include uh, a meal in a cup. That's one of the buttons. It says meal in a cup. Is that for like ramen noodles? Stuff? I guess so. There's also it's a, gotta be it. Yeah, it's another button that says potato. 
I got a, I got a potato button on my yeah, on my mic. The thing is, like ninety percent of the buttons on your microwave, no one's ever used or looked at. So it is possible my microwave can make a perfect grilled cheese sandwich, and my, I've never looked at it. But I again, I should have done some research. Specifically says don't use the popcorn button, so I don't even use the popcorn button. <laughs> your microwave says don't use the popcorn button. Or your no, white. the popcorn I buy specifically says in bold print, do not use – It's the you got to get an air popper. They're not expensive. It's the Kirkland Signature Movie Popcorn. Um, okay. I don't know if you know. I like movies. Um, and it has in bold print on the package, do not use the popcorn button on your microwave. <laughs> because the universe could implode. If you put popcorn in a microwave and use the popcorn setting – <laughs> that's a quantum physics nightmare <laughs> that that is hey, one of the final you. warnings like in stephen hawking's book right it's like don't meet aliens don't use the popcorn so, yeah yeah the large so, the large hadron collider cannot possibly compete with microwaving costco popcorn on the popcorn setting i do so i mean i guess i should have done some research because i did have a lot of questions and i really want to know if like at one point they tried to introduce microwaves with a browning function and they decided that that was a terrible idea probably due to like 10 to 12 fatalities i would guess like that feels like something to watch mojo list where it's like products they took off the market <laughs> Because it killed well, eight to twelve people. Well, do you remember, like, for a long time, pressure cookers were basically. I grew up with pressure cookers not as something that people had in their kitchens, but with the the idea that uh, anarchists turned them into bombs. Um, <laughs> I did not grow up with the idea of someone having pressure cookers in their kitchen, and now, like, fifty percent of kitchens in America have an instant pot. So, um, I'm assuming they've gotten better. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of pressure cookers. Um, they go to Vegas and it's their first stop to renew their vows. And in one of the, we've, we alluded to it in our earlier discussion, but one of the absolute genius parts of this movie, all this stuff takes four, it's an hour and a half movie. Yeah. 45 minutes, right. Of just making plans, leaving this stuff behind, going on their first drive, making a, they have a goodbye party for all their friends. (laughs) Yeah. It's like an RV cake that clearly they made themselves, which <laughs> can you imagine? Like, hopefully one of their friends made it for them. But if you went to a goodbye party and they made themselves an RV cake, you are glad those friends are leaving. <laughs> um, so, but they get to Vegas and they have a, you know, they have that exchange with like, well, you don't understand. We've left society, so we don't make reservations <laughs> and trying to figure out, you know, they try to get the honeymoon suite, whatever. Uh, so, you know, Albert Brooks wakes up in the morning and his wife's not there and he goes kind of is wandering around the hotel or the casino in a robe. And again, his, the rules don't matter to him because he's left society. Uh, mm-hmm. And he finds his wife at a roulette table and uh, she just has this wild look in her eyes and she's saying, 22, 22, hit 22. And uh, the kind of the pit boss is like, yeah, you got to go talk to your wife. She's not having a good night. And then she hits 22 and there's excitement. And he's like, oh, good. Are we doing well? And the pit boss is like, you're, you're still not having a good night. <laughs> so <laughs> she he finally kind of gets her like out. She loses everything. And he sits down, like, and she's just kind of mumbling about how she can get it back and has this, like, just completely distant, unengaged look in her eyes. And he's like, well, how much did you lose? And she's like, everything, everything, everything. But I can get it back. I can get it back. And he's like, what do you mean everything? And yeah, 
you find out, but all but like a thousand, a little under a thousand dollars, she spent it all gambling, not knowing that she had a gambling problem because she'd only gambled once before in her life. And again, just a brilliant. Mo- this whole movie is about how can we have all this money and go on this adventure? And their first stop, they lose everything. It becomes a horror movie in a little bit because, like, I do. I I'm, I have no gambling problem. I'm actually like. But I remember being in college and like losing two or three hundred dollars, which was a lot for me in college. Yeah. And feeling like I had made the worst decision of my life to do that or something like that. And so like it does feel like a horror movie to feel like your entire life savings and everything you have in the world, you just gambled away and then that's it. There's just nothing yeah. Yeah. nothing you can do. Albert Brooks uh, being a person who's not like these other people because he's less society tries to explain to the pit boss about how it would be a great ad campaign if they ran a campaign where it's the casino that cares and gives you back your money if you're not a gambler who didn't mean to lose it um and uh, again one of the other things that's great about this movie like when he quits it's not a throwaway gag while they move into the next one they have like a five minute conversation it's a it's a great scene with uh it's uh gary marshall who plays the pit boss producer yeah. and uh yeah oh. Yeah, director. he casts directors a lot, actually. Um, mm-hmm. James L. Yeah. Brooks was also in the past two movies, right? He was in Real Life and he was in yep. um, 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 Modern, uh, Modern Romance. Yeah, Modern Romance. He plays the director of, of the terrible movie in that, in that movie. Oh, yes, yes. The, like, Corman movie. Yep, yep. You know, they are then driving. Obviously, the, the pit boss does not agree to it. Uh, they're driving in silence and he's doing that thing of, like, I'm fine. Everything's fine. I love the I love him sort of politely humoring him and explaining that he's like, so we don't really make as much money on the restaurant or the shows as you might think. We make money from the gambling because we're a casino. So um, it's like your you plan don't, to you lure think- people into the shows is actually not what we're aiming for. <laughs> it's like, yeah. actually the infrastructure he's like the diff- you know uh, it's the difference between us and like the schmucks that come here to see wayne newton and he's like i like wayne yeah <laughs> you know the co- the negotiation is over at that point yeah all of that is so great also the idea of like well where he's like if that's our advertisement though everyone will want <laughs> their money back when they lose and he's like no 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 they won't because they're gamblers we're good people <laughs> who made a mistake um it's it's so perfect so anyway so they're you know they're driving and they're speaking in silence and Julie Haggerty is like trying to either jump start the fight or jump start a conversation to have fun um and Albert Brooks is you know, seething and dragging it out. And, you know, it's 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 not in, like, a healthy way that, like, I just need my space till I've processed it. And I get they're stuck in a motorhome, so that might be challenging. Although the casino did offer to comp their room and their meal, and they did not seem to take advantage of it at all. Um, which I feel like they should have under the circumstances. So she suggests going to the Hoover Dam and just, like, we'll figure it out later. Let's have a good time. They go to the Hoover Dam and uh, she says, I'm hungry. Let's go get some food. And I forget exactly. I should have written it down. But something about the idea of like, I don't think we're in a situation where we get to eat at the Hoover Dam or something. <laughs> and like, she's like, well, then give me half of my money. Half of the, your half of your money. And that jump starts this like screaming flight fr- fight. Um, well directed where they're on the opposite ends of like this little <laughs> walkway with like the tour guide and other people there. So they're literally like screaming 
uh, screaming across. That whole section of the film is just like a series of like really well done scenes. And I think that the Hoover Dam one, I think maybe the Gary Marshall one's my favorite, but the, just the gag of their like petty bullshit dwarfed by the enormity of the Hoover Dam is really funny. Yeah. Well, and also that then they go, he, she does convince him to go into the RV to fight, <laughs> but like yeah. the RV is maybe 10 feet away from the tour and it's an RV. So. Yeah. Um, you know, they're still going to hear all the screaming, but she's like, look, I said that, you you know, she's like, tries to sit him down and go, please, you know, get this out. Know that, like, I could not be more sorry. You don't think I'm like this. This concerns me, too. Like, you don't think you you had a, like tries to just explain, like, in an empathetic way. Like, look, you had your breakdown when you quit your job and did all that stuff. And I didn't judge you for that. My breakdown was like realizing that I have nothing that is fun in my life and people were cheering me on. And so. Like, you know, trying to be like, you know, we handled our misery or our our reaction to bad things differently, but they were both extreme. And, uh, you know, he is not interested in engaging in that particular conversation, continues to yell and scream. She's like, fine, I'm leaving, man. She hitchhikes, gets into a car and drives away. I also realized this was one of those funny things. Like, I try not to do too much about, like, well, if cell phones exist. But I also realized, like... There was a chance that he could never see her again because they don't have a house to go back to anymore. They don't have a phone to call each other. Uh, how, Like, if she got separated, how would they ever track each other down? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I had that I had that exact same thought in a way that's, like, uh, fairly sickening. Like, I was, like, enjoying – I was, like, really enjoying the period nature of it. And then I was, yeah. like – how how were they ever going to communicate without cell phones? Well, I mean, I, was, I think, I I think that's maybe why he was so panicked about it. Like, he does seem more panicked than like I'll 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 meet up with her at some point because theoretically, I guess you could just never see them again. Besides, like involving the police and posters and stuff like that. So they end up in this. So he does track her down at a diner. Diner. The guy at the diner is like, she said, leave him, leave, uh, leave her alone. Takes him outside to to fight, punches him in the nose. He's like a big guy. He's the guy from uh, Pee Wee's um, Big Adventure, right? Yeah. Is he also? I think he's also um, in Revenge of the Nerds. I think he's. Oh, like, he is. Uh, yeah, he, he's uh, he's the he's the guy that screams nerds. 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 Yeah. He does not scream nerds in this movie, but I don't know if this came out before or after Revenge of the Nerds. So maybe they didn't know that he was good at screaming nerds yet. <laughs> Um, they know Albert so, Brooks was a nerd, and he screamed at him. And they yeah. were like, "You are eminently qualified. You should be in this movie, where the nerds are also the bad guys." Yeah, we're we're taking you to the big time, screaming at like twelve nerds. Um, but they get into a fight, and he's like, "She's like, I'm calling the police." He's like, "Well, I can't be here if you're gonna call the police because I'm a one man." Then you find out from the conversation that he had with Julie Argenti that he murdered a couple people and escaped from jail. Uh, and they kind of like laugh. They're like they laugh about it, you know. They they are like, well, what are we gonna do now? So they're like, well, we only have enough gas to essentially get to Arizona or New Mexico. And she's like, Arizona's fine. They go to Arizona. They find this RV park community and decide they're gonna live there and go get jobs. And they're trying to get like psyched up about this being their new life. And they go apply for jobs. That's where I mentioned he's applying for like a delivery. Uh, a delivery man he's like well can you provide the truck and he's like well no theoretically you would have your own 
truck. He's like, well, I have a motor home. They're like, yeah, you're <laughs> like the gas that you would pay to drive that will be less than I pay you <laughs> or be more than I pay you. Um, so he ends up getting a job as a, as a crossing guard. She gets a job as an assistant manager somewhere. You find out, again, it's a hot dog stand. They work for a day, and they both have the same idea. Well, why doesn't he go and eat shit and try to get his job back in New York? And that's what they do. The end of the movie is he drives to New York. He parks in front of the advertising place and goes and says, you know, sees the, the guy who was going to be his boss in New York on the Ford account and chases him into the building. And you find out from the, you know, scrolling and text on screen that he was able to get his job back at a pay cut, um, and they're expecting their first kid. And I think one one of the things on the ending that's so funny to me, a lot of the contemporary reviews at the time, even ones that were positive, had a problem with the ending in that they were selling out their principles. And I have to say to those people, uh, your brain was broken by the 80s. <laughs> 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 the idea that they were accomplishing something in leaving society and all, everything that you saw in this movie was wrong. You took the wrong. I'm glad you liked it, but you took the wrong message from this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> this is one of those movies where reading your reviews is is very uh, d- distressing at times uh, <laughs> because. Uh, Certain people just absolutely understood it. Roger Ebert gave it a very solid review. Yeah. But, um, a, a po- I, I, it's one of the the things I like about the show is I get an excuse to go and read reviews from the early 70s and the early 80s. The, the people just abs- obstinately not refusing to understand the point of the movie, even as it bashes them over the head. Like, yeah. I understand that maybe maybe a movie is not giving you exactly what you want because a movie movie doesn't have to give you exactly what you want like that just doesn't dawn on a lot of people well i think also they didn't really get that um it was calling their them out directly like that that um uh, hayden uh uh bythway who was a former guest of the show had the had a great uh great assessment on letterbox that i read that was calling out the fact that boomers love to have everyone else's cake and eat it too and like and i i thought that was a very apt description of like the movie's tone, and so what's funny is, is that yeah, the the movie got very good reviews, even you know contemporary at the time. And I feel like the couple that I read outside of Ebert's either thought that they were that that the the joke was about how small town America like was not like like oh, what a bunch of silly people trying to like give up on there, you know, to go uh, to go connect with and leave society like thinking that they were off base because society as depicted in this movie and capitalism as depicted in this movie is good or that they sold out their principles that they were actually achieving something up until the point they decide to give up and and go back to New York and like those two readings of the movie again I don't know if it's just because it was released in 1985 but just feel like just tremendously inaccurate readings of the tone of the movie <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, I'd agree. But the, um, I think the the cynicism of his movies is often misinterpreted because he, he approaches it with such a, like, a light tone that yeah. um, people can assume he just fucked something up. Yeah. yeah, like, this movie was meant to be a vacation-esque thing, and it didn't, didn't quite hit that mark. Yeah. Speaking right, of people right. that Speaking of people that uh, obstinately misunderstand things all the time, this movie begins... I know, I was a, 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 a,
Larry King interviewing Rex Reed about how and Rex Reed talking about how he doesn't understand movies. <laughs> <laughs> Larry King interviewing Rex Reed is like my nightmare show. <laughs> I have to imagine. I so I didn't look this up. I don't know if that was a was a interview he got the rights for or something that he scripted. I have to imagine it was scripted. I don't Maybe know. Not. It's such a I don't, specific I don't know. Piece. It's such yeah. a specific piece of like verisimilitude. Like I I don't totally I don't totally I, I understand it has some resonance because it's talking about like the film the film experience and going and sitting down in the theater and like, you know, what you lose by certain sorts of film experiences. Like I understand there's a certain sort of resonance there. Um I don't know. Like just selecting a Larry King interview and getting the rights from Larry King to to play it in the movie also feels like a Albert Brooks move, right? Like, um, it, it, it doesn't feel performed. Oh, uh, so I did look it up. So Reed gave Brooks earlier review, uh, earlier films exclusively negative reviews. <laughs> oh, so, so this he, is like uh, this is like the Leonard Malton being Gremlins two thing, except that it seems like it was an interview. <laughs> Like, I don't think it was for them. So the the Gremlins 2 thing is great because, uh, yeah, Leonard Malton gave a shitty review to Gremlins and then had enough, like, good nature to poke fun of it himself in Gremlins 2. I think this is him getting an actual interview and putting it into the movie. Rex Reed is famously not uh, someone who has a sense of humor about himself. <laughs> no. Uh, so. so it's it's a huge... Yeah, so it felt like a fuck you, and I was like, I, I meant to look up, like, did he give bad reviews to Albert Brooks's previous movies? Uh, and yeah, because why can't <laughs> they just be nice? <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> right. But yeah, I, I that that moment when it was when it was opening the movie, I, I was just like, where are they going with this? Is this going to be some sort of meta textual treatise on? Um, on this, I like it better as just being sort of a petty jab at Rex Reed specifically. <laughs> Yeah, well, and the thing that's so funny is that... That works you, better for me. <laughs> I know, it's, it's great. <laughs> um, uh, especially right before a movie that is very cynical and bleak and definitely not um, definitely not just a nice movie about nice people. I do think, I, I think funny, that though, casino scene is is on par with, like, the worst episodes of The Office. Well, not the worst, the most... Or the worst Twilight. ...cringy episodes, episodes yeah. of The yeah. Office, like Scott's Tots, where you're just like, I can't look at the screen, but I am laughing. it is interesting to note that like again this movie i think was kind of thought of as like a a funny road comedy it seems like from a lot of contemporary critics it is interesting that like most of the retrospective reviews like scott tobias's that he did for the criterion collection or some stuff in the atlantic and a few other things is like um a hundred percent identifies the brutal cynicism of this movie Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it feels like a like a, a time capsule that was self-aware, that was like diagnosing yep. the Reagan yuppie um, era, you know, at the time. It is it is funny this month, like or uh, within the Albert Brooks month, we're sort of coming back. To <laughs> Peter, like- hold on. Let's pause there. Thank you so much for remembering that we're going to be a little bit off month wise uh until uh june because we did our mr ed episode that threw off our entire schedule for six months so i really appreciate you remembering that and then correcting that uh not this month but albert brooks month which goes yes. as we all know from march 7th to april 7th <laughs> <laughs> yes every year 
There's a uh, Jewish calendar. There's a Chinese calendar. There's an Albert Brooks calendar. There's a We Love to Watch Did a Mr. Ed episode. They weren't planning on it, but decided not to release two episodes in a single week calendar. Um, but I think, <laughs> I think we all agree that even though Peter has to remember a different way to talk about months, I think that the Mr. Ed episode was worth it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the Mayan calendar was based on, um, <laughs> them wanting to include a festival where they celebrate, um, uh, a talking horse god. <laughs> <laughs> Little known fact. Little known fact. That's why December is seen as a time of celebration and the Christians co-opted it. Hmm. I don't know if you knew that. Please no. don't do any of the math on how, what year Westerners came to <laughs> America's. Don't do any math. Just accept it as fact. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I love that, you know, the tagline for this movie is like about someone, I forget the exact, I didn't write it down, but it's about finding yourself and, you know, leaving everything to find yourself. And I like that the movie actually, I think, fulfills that. Like, he found himself. He's a person who wants money. Yeah, and I wonder, I wonder if there's going to be another anxious breakdown, like, right around they have a kid, and they're like, did we have, was having kids right for us? Now we can't leave everything behind, because they kind of talk about the idea that, like, we blew our nest egg, time to go get a nest egg again, and that's going to take more work, and we can accomplish that quicker by eating shit and taking the job in New York. Yeah. Um, it's it's hard to imagine them uh, segueing gracefully into parenthood. <laughs> yeah, I think that's I think that's a hundred percent fair, and it just seems like yeah, like I think they would be classic Yelpy parents, where they're con- they're they're more concerned about what the title of the preschool and they're willing yeah. to spend, you know, those kind of parents. Like my kid goes to X because it all is about like. The status of being able to get into those things and make those decisions as opposed to, like, actually what you care about or what matters. And I think, totally. like, the what they care about is important, too. Like, does Albert Brooks actually care about, you know, you know, to go back to the uh, example earlier, does he actually care about what color the car is or does he care about being able to be the person to make that decision or the way that other people will judge how expensive his car is depending on what color pattern or whether he has actual leather seats instead of uh what is it called uh, <laughs> uh mercedes leather. mercedes leather yeah, yeah. <laughs> all the car stuff cracks me up the the car stuff and all the um the constant research uh referencing of easy rider is also just really funny it's like a, a through line that makes me laugh because he just get out of the get out of the ticket yeah yeah that was the first conversation where it's brought up that they die at the end of Easy Rider. I feel like <laughs> when he first when he first brings it up, Julie Haggerty gives him a look that I read as like her knowing, you know, like remembering the ending. But maybe I was just imposing that on it. Or it's like, huh, Easy Rider, huh? <laughs> like, well, what's that funny that is that Peter know. just saw Easy Rider for the first time in the last couple weeks. Oh, it was no, it was like a year or two ago. But yeah. Oh, like, I thought I thought you watched it for the Criterion Challenge this year. No, no, it was uh, it was it was a year or two ago. But like, well, well, after I had seen two hundred commercials parodying <laughs> it and yeah. uh, old dogs and all of those movies. <laughs> and you mean old, you old dogs? dogs. <laughs> you mean wild hogs? Wild hogs. There we go. <laughs> you're, you're getting your hogs and your dogs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. What a, what a catastrophe. Um, but I. 
I, I when I saw Easy Rider and I was watching them ride motorcycles on the road and I was like, this is sick. They're just out there like, you know, Dennis Hopper's going insane. Like we're, we're doing this. And then like 10 minutes in or something, they play Born to be Wild and they're riding motorcycles. And I was, and I started laughing like my reaction was to start laughing because I was like, no way they played this in this. And I was like, oh, wait this movie created that <laughs> like it took me it didn't take me 30 seconds but it took me probably 10 to 15 seconds for it to sink in i was like i've never actually seen this movie it's just a movie that like has been sort of i digested yeah. like yeah. absorbed through my skin maybe in a way that like i i didn't realize uh because pop culture had broken it up into constituent parts parts and parodied them and tried to do them sincerely over and over and over again to the point that like me hearing what at the time was just like a new rock song <laughs> is like genuinely hilarious yeah. um, all the, the kids movie, were like still great, by the way. get the new Stefan wolf album <laughs> The but yeah that cut came through when I was when that scene came on I was like oh I'm recognizing this as a joke because I've seen I've seen Easy Rider yes but also I've seen 200 commercials for yeah. Ford trucks and I don't know like fucking really spicy chicken sandwiches <laughs> yeah I feel like that's the yeah the uh, pre digested uh, notion of that that scene or that sentiment it's like we can't really engage with that anymore unironically in some ways because it is like yeah like get your motor running head out on the highway immediately is like and buy this burger you know what i mean it's like the, <laughs> the easy rider vibe is is been subsumed by consumerism yeah well i i actually think that is why the current generation of reviewers are when people like in you know watch this on on and rate on letterbox for the first time i think that's because like there is a general you we mentioned the generational difference in watching this movie but it's because like their their boom their uh, boomer or yuppie fantasy which at the time was seen as aspirational now seems unattainable right like that idea that you have a nest egg the idea that you have this job where you essentially talk to your coworkers about your next promotion while not seeming to do that much work and you know Instead of like trying to find a, a house that you can get in the you know before someone else or some company you know buys it out from under you um, f- with with cash that you can't possibly compete with like you know it's it, it's recognizing a world you know at the t- even in the eighties that the American dream quote unquote was only available to a to a select few but it was seen as aspir- aspirational and I think that's why modern audiences like understand and reckon with the message that the movie was clearly doing because they look at it and go oh yeah this is all bullshit (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely and um but like (laughs) like the the allure is i mean we talked about this beginning of the episode uh the allure is in every generation like yeah the reason that this movie works is because people watching it i don't i i i I think that there are probably very few people in america that haven't thought it's sort of part of the American experience. Like, very few people in America have probably haven't thought like, "Oh, I should pick up and just leave and go do something new." Yeah, how many people? How many th- people think Into the Wild is an aspirational tome? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we talked about that entire that entire month, which at the time aligned with an actual calendar month. Um, with uh, <laughs> with with uh, our uh, you know Back to Nature month um, that Rick was on for Mosquito Coast. 
the uh, back to wild sort of fantasy is part of the American fantasy and whether or not it's um, you're trying to purposefully counteract like sort of a colonialist uh, urgency to like, I need to go out and claim the unclaimed land, which obviously does not belong to you. Um, or you're, you're, you're just like, nope, manifest destiny. I am going, I am going out there and I am, I am uh, taking finding my myself. rightful God given piece of America. Like n- whether you are taking it as a colonialist or an anti-colonialist sort of perspective, um, it is part of the American experience. Just be like, maybe I do need to get up and get out of here and, and go live somewhere in the country. Like if people, people, even people who are like, I born in New York, I'll die in New York and justifiably so. Cause it's, you know, one of the best cities on the planet. Uh, I can guarantee you like two thirds of that city at some point has just been like, Christ, I should just like get in a car and go. <laughs> I well, just get the train to go. I mean, it is true. Like on the colonialistic uh st- from a colonialism standpoint like his first thing when he says he wants to get back to nature is he wants to touch an indian <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes i forgot about that so I mean, that, that's very much i think uh a recognition of brooks the writer and director not the character of like uh it ha- i mean it has to be the fact that yeah. that's the first thing he says has oh 100 percent. yeah 100 yeah. I the, the one good thing about Albert Brock's movies is they don't, as we found on month, inspire three-hour episodes because they're really good, but they're tight and compact and have like ten scenes that are all amazing. Uh, so I don't really have too much else to say unless there's other disparate uh, lines or or scenes that you guys want to jump into before we go to final thoughts. No, I mean I would second that. I actually before we got on, I was uh, I was saying I'm not really sure what <laughs> how much I have to say about this movie, but yeah, it is like uh the uh compression or like the tightness of it it's pretty amazing it's a very fleet very like nimble 90 minute movie that travels all the way across the country it's like a, lining everything up in these um these series of like fantastic scenes and uh it gets in and gets out and it's pretty remarkable yeah i i think like in a summation of the month as a whole too like I, I do think, like, rewatching all of these that it's really tough to, like, pick a favorite. Um, I feel like I underrated Modern Romance and Lost in America the first time I watched them. And um, I, I don't think I overrated Real Life, but I think I properly rated Real Life and Defending Your Life at five stars. Uh, and I still stand by those as five star uh, movies. But, like, I, you know, watching these in such close proximity to each other it's just it really is amazing the movies that albert brooks was able to make in this era and you know they weren't the most popular comedies in the world they didn't win all the awards but again there's a reason why they're kind of held up as as comedy classics because they do have a perspective that's amazingly recognizable and their comedy is derived from i think calling out the uh, a lot of the worst excesses of of uh capitalism or uh, show business or the idea of fame or you know that that nice quote-unquote nice guys are actually can be very toxic damaging guys and like you know they just uh i always have had a big affinity for them which is why when peter said i've never seen one I was quick to go like, holy shit, we need to do a month to watch the his first four movies. Uh, I'm really glad we, we did this. Again, it's a little bit different from 
a lot of the stuff we talk about, it comes uh, just a couple months after we spent like 50 hours trying to watch a ton of TV to prep. So it also like it, the brevity of the movies and the brevity of the discussion was, I think, a good palate cleanser uh, for us as well. Um, but I, yeah, if you have never got around to watching any of these movies, they're all like these first four are all great and watch them. The only thing I would say is don't watch real life first, because I think uh, these give a better sense of kind of what uh, where Albert Brooks is as a character uh, before you get into real life, even though that was his first movie. But that one is definitely a, a little a little more, I think, severe because he's playing a version of himself uh, making a documentary that uh, but but that that is the last thing I'll say what is what is different I think even from a risky standpoint and a story structure standpoint like we noted last week with real life his documentary falls apart at the seams from the first scene this movie which does 45 minutes of build up into their adventure it doesn't have a third act where they've lost their money and need to figure out what to do they immediately lose all their money when they start the road trip <laughs> uh modern romance begins with a with a breakup uh, and then they're back together 30 minutes into the movie. Um, he is his his way of like telling a story uh, is not doesn't eschew the typical three X structure, but it does things that is very subversive from what your expectations are, yeah. even by the even by the nature of like modern comedies that were influenced by Albert Brooks movies. Yeah, I can't uh, I totally agree. And I can't overstate how much I was surprised by the way that the narrative unfolded. I didn't. I didn't read up on it beforehand, so I didn't know. And uh, yeah, <laughs> that notion of the 45-minute buildup, and then they immediately, <laughs> disaster immediately strikes. They don't get anywhere. It's just very funny. Yeah, yeah. And and the fact, the movie has such a cutting sense of humor and, and, and a, 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 a sort of impatience with, how, with being subversive. The, I love that the movie almost begins with a uh a just like an ad hack being like we got the rights to new york new york yeah and it's like something for bagels or whatever what the fuck are they selling yeah yeah and, and he, he I, starts, I hate i hate your song brad your song, your your song. song stunk <laughs> shut up brad seat. shut up brad <laughs> it's so good but and then <clears throat> as the movie's closing out they play new york new york ironically which is like, Martin Scorsese gets a lot of rightful attention for his ironic use of pop music, but, like, that one hit me, like, a like just a, a ton of bricks, because yeah. I was just like, they didn't want to move here. <laughs> yeah. They're not right for each other. They learned all the wrong lessons <laughs> from being out on the road, but, you know... They need to get their life, their yuppie lifestyle back. So let's let's get that uh, let's get that job going. And he's gonna spend his next his next few job cycles just fighting to earn back that thirty percent he lost. Um, yeah. To try and get some position of of uh, of of you know greater regard or whatever he thinks will like impress himself and impress his friends, his friends that he's been calling and they've been all saying that he's he's gonna. Be, I'm, <laughs> I'm crazy for thinking that he's not gonna get the position. Like that 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 I that beautiful ironic touch to end the movie with New York, New York after the beginning of the movie, it's basically Albert Brooks saying, Guys, we got the rights for New York, New York. <laughs> like it's like I gotta drop the I gotta drop New York, New York. Uh just just wonderful. Um I'm it is kind of nice to have started the month on, on the heaviest Brooks, I would say, and on yeah. this one, which I think is 
uh, kind of the, the the perfect middle road between the the supreme lightness of like defending your life um, and the um, the like really cynical meanness of, of modern romance where by the end you just want this guy to to just like walk off a cliff <laughs> yeah yeah again it's it's one a, it's a movie where you rethink your stance on the death penalty yes <laughs> like i know we're not charging people for for these crimes that lead to the death penalty but i would be willing to support introducing a bill <laughs> yes yes just i mean it's a very limited bill very limited bill but I imagine it will have extreme bipartisan support. Yeah. In about an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> if they yeah, if they watch all of modern romance. So basically this is what we want to make a crime. <laughs> uh yeah, what well, are Peter, you doing I'm, here? None of that business. None of that business. Well, Peter, I uh what do you want to wrap with just your general I think you're kind of heading there too, but I'm I know I don't think you were skeptical about doing this month, but I think you were. I mean, obviously, you didn't know what to expect going in. Yeah, yeah. So I this was a a series of movies that I I knew had critical regard, and I uh, going into this month, I I sort of realized the reason that I never watched these movies is the same reason I skipped a lot of the sort of um, like adult comedies of the seventies that are very well regarded, Um, like movies like Being There, and you know. A lot of these sort of, like, comedian-driven comedies that were not slapsticky or silly, that were very much focused on, like, the experience of life or the experience of politics, um, I, I skipped a lot of, I skipped a lot of them when I was in, like, my early, like, film education because I was, like, I think I was sort of self-aware enough to be, like, I don't think I know enough about life to be able to, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. like, I think I, I can understand, I, I can understand, uh, you know, uh, certain genre traits to be able to appreciate a lot of these these specific movies but you know this maybe i'll save these movies for later and i'm kind of glad i did because i didn't um i didn't come into this with any apprehension i was just like oh well i've i've now i've now experienced quite a bit of life i think i can understand what's going on here and like yeah he made he made movies for adults like he made drama dramedies for adults that don't uh, hold your hand. Like they can be extremely funny, yeah, but like they don't hold your hand. They are very much about um, the indignities of getting older and the indignities of of working life and how um, our romantic lives are are intertwined with all of that and how we're. Uh, both expected to uh, fight off mawing loneliness. Um, but at the same time, we're expected to, you know, don't be a weird social outcast, you know, go date, go be, go be a social person, go do what all your friends are doing to make friends. Like he made movies about the experience of getting older and realizing that, you know, when you were 18, I think you pictured a version of yourself that had all of their wildest dreams satisfied. And maybe you checked all those boxes. Uh, a beautiful partner that you're married to, a cool car, a house, something, you know, maybe you got a great, a great dog or a cat. And um, maybe all those boxes were checked when you were 18, but uh, maybe some of them aren't. But regardless, you can have everything checked and still be kind of dissatisfied and feel a sense of ennui. And that ennui doesn't come out in the sort of like, <laughs> I think for most of us that ennui doesn't come out in the sort of like uh, French new wave uh, sort of, you know, cool guys in sunglasses kind of way. It comes out in the ways where you're just like up in the middle of the night driving your partner fucking crazy because you're just like unloading all of your anxieties on that. I'm going to go sleep in the garage. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then feeling bad about unloading your anxieties, which brings it to another an, uh, another Uber tier of anxieties. And like, that's what that's what discontentment actually looks like. Yeah. It doesn't mean that like, uh, it doesn't mean that you are fully alone living in a cabin in, in, in the in the woods or, you know, you're, you're working a job uh, that, uh, you know, you never would have dreamed you would have been doing when you were 18. It very often it very often means you got a lot of what you wanted when you were 18 uh, or a lot of things that people told you you wanted when you were 18. But you still feel something that some sort of um, thing gnawing at you yeah. and. Uh, him able to, uh, Albert Brooks able to capture that while making like incredibly funny movies, and in the case of *Defending Your Life*, incredibly romantic movies about like you can you can completely fuck up your life and get stay focused on the wrong stuff for way way too long, and it's still never too late to like stop being a coward, and, like actually yeah. seek out the things that truly make you happy. And that's yeah. Like, in some ways, yeah. Ending this series with defending your life may have been a little bit better because it's the one movie where he unambiguously like has some minor redemption as like a self-obsessed uh, character with some toxic traits. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but this 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 one ends more representatively, I think, of a of an Albert Brooks movie. Which, to your point, Peter, not making you as sad as Modern Romance, uh, or just being uh, as completely fucking nuts as the end of of Real Life is. Uh, but yeah, this was a fun month. Uh, Rick, thanks so much for joining us here at the end. Uh, Absolutely. To promote. Oh, not particularly. No, just just life. Go go live your best life. Thanks, Go Rick. find yourself. Go find uh, yourself. Hit the road. Uh, Get your motor so, running. So later this month into the <laughs> next month, uh, we're actually uh, – we can call it our uh, paternity leave month. I don't know. <laughs> we're we're uh, – we, I don't know if you guys know this about Peter and myself. We love to watch. We also love to record. We don't like to edit. And uh, what that means is we have about like 10 or 11 episodes that have stored up from our sidecasts. That we're going to be releasing over the course. We're not, we're not going to get to all of them. Um, especially if paternity leave goes longer or something like that. Um, but uh, we have five Star Trek episodes that are in the bank and recorded. Up to uh, some a few, the first three Next Generation movies. And a couple episodes going through some foundational stuff for Next Generation the show. Or the Borg arc or some other stuff. Uh, we have, I think, like four or five. Uh, we... Uh, uh, What's the name of that other show we do? <laughs> Don't you dares? Including one I'm very excited to release because we were on top of our shit. One of our one of my Don't You Dare back pocket things was making Peter listen to New Radicals uh only album. Uh maybe you've been brainwashed too. And then lo and behold, Joe Biden gets inaugurated president and he has the new radicals perform. At his inauguration. Who's been talking about the new radicals since 1998? So Peter and I, the week before that happened, recorded an episode talking about wow. the new radicals album, and then we never edited it. <laughs> so ho- we were hoping it comes back around at some point yeah. and someone talks about the new radicals again, but <laughs> it doesn't seem like it's going to happen. And so we're just going to probably release the episode. Um, and we have a few other ones. Uh, it's 
as as well, including talking about an old Ratchet and Clank gang uh, game uh, before we even knew there was going to be a new one. So a lot of good stuff that's not timely anymore, but I think still all happened during COVID. So we'll talk about that. Um, and then May to continue our series of this is a good segue into our actual next month. Uh, May we're doing Reagan sucks month, and we're doing uh, we're doing Repo Man. Mm. Uh, Brazil, RoboCop, and Peter, do you remember the last? Oh, they live. Oh, yeah, they live. Wow, that's going to be fun. Those are all movies that I was surprised we haven't done on the show yet. Uh, I don't know if you know this, Peter. There's a ton of movies. We we uh, we are of yeah, only we done covered 300 RoboCop. I bet you if we cobbled together all the times we brought up RoboCop on other movies, we probably have talked about it for seven hours. More than 300. We've only done 300 movies on this show. We have a lot to get through. And we really <laughs> need to pick up the pace. Especially yeah. if they keep releasing they're still, more. They're still making them. Yeah, exactly. I know. It's it's impossible. But, you know, that's we always said at the beginning of the show, our goal was to do one movie a week until we get all of them done. And we got a ways to go. Um, so, with that... I'll see you all on the other side of, I don't know, being a parent again. Yeah. Yeah. I like to go to movies during the day. Um, not when there's a big crowd. You like to Ten, sleep in. 10 a.m. Like if possible. 10 a.m. Yeah. if possible. Yeah. Um, and then I like to go to a movie and then sleep also during the movie and then get my ride up, my ride up uh, into my editor right on time. Um, because it turns out when you're Rex Reed, you don't really have to watch the movie. No, you just have to be angry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Good night. Good night. (laughs) Bye. to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show 
show, we truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm.